In Acts 2 and 4, we see that this community that came out of collision of Pentecost and the gospel, first of all, there's not a need among them. Not a need. And as I said, commentators suggest that this was more than material, but it was physical, emotional, and spiritual. Not a need. Imagine that. Imagine if we walked into this room right now, and, and even if there was need, because we were together, we walked out, and there was no need. Also, we learned that they were one. They were one. There was a complete unity. There was this koinonia, this fellowship that was just cursing through the veins of this body. And I was thinking about this this week. You could never manufacture this. Never. There's no place in the world where this could be manufactured. The only reason why this was a community where there was no need is because people gave. People gave like crazy. And people gave radically. They gave generously. They sold things so that they could meet needs. They gave up things so that they could meet needs. They just gave. And I think one of the reasons why there was so much oneness is because they forgave each other in the same way they gave to each other. But then you can't manufacture that. But that comes as a result of the gospel because at the heart of the gospel is God giving and God forgiving. It's who God is. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He gave it all so he could forgive all. And that is what needs to be at the heart of this. Now this week we're going to Look at Ezekiel 47. I think this is one of the most beautiful prophecies in the Bible. It's another powerful picture of what God gives to us. And I want to just say just a few things before we dive into this. Because I know some of you are like, why do we always have to look at all the pictures and stories and narratives in the Bible? Well, about 10 years ago, I started to realize that God's Word is not a systematic theology textbook. And I know some of you are like, duh. Well, if you were raised in my upbringing, um, that's kind of what it was. The Bible is also not just a book of ethics. Here's the rules. Here's how you're to live. The Bible is a story. It's the story about who God is and what God is doing in the world, past, present, and future, to redeem it and to restore it. And yes, God does communicate through logical, propositional truths. I don't want to throw that baby out. However, God loves to communicate through pictures. For instance, close your eyes, all of you. You can do it. All right, I'm taking my shirt off now. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I know I, my wife isn't with me this weekend. That's why I got the jeans on. I'm feeling a little more freedom than normal. I'm kidding. Um, shut up, Rod. Okay, close your eyes. Close your eyes. Now, what comes to your mind when I say God is truth? God is love. God is omniscient. God is holy. 
Now, I don't know if it's just me, but when I close my eyes and think about that, I just see words. Keep your eyes closed. What comes to your mind when I say God is shepherd? Or God is honey to my lips? Or God is shade on a hot day? Or God is a fortress, a strong tower? Or God is husband? Or God is Papa? You can open your eyes. Do you see the difference? Today we're going to look at another picture that God gives us that runs through the whole Bible, beginning in Genesis and going to Revelation. Let's read Ezekiel 47. Stand for it. Stand for God's words, sit for mine. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. I think the Bible wants us to have south in our mind. He then brought me out through the north gate, and he led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits. A cubit is just simply from the end of my finger to my elbow. And he led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water now that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me now through water that was up to my waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in it, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see the picture? And then he led me back to the bank of the river, and when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, the water flows towards the east and goes down to the Arabah, which is the desert where it enters the sea, the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the Dead Sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever this river flows. There will be large numbers of fish, because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. And fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Enaglam. Talked about that last week, connecting it to John 21. There will be places for the spreading of nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Can you picture it? And their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for the food and their leaves for healing. It's God's word. Powerful picture. You can be seated. Just a little context here, okay? The temple has been destroyed. 
Jerusalem has been pillaged and raped, and God's people have been exiled to Babylon. Ezekiel, who was once a priest, but now acting as a prophet, is calling God's people to repentance based on this hope. God is going to resurrect, redeem, and restore. So in Ezekiel 16, which is just an awesome chapter, it almost lays out the whole story of what God does with his people, where they, where they start off as this little infant kicking around in their blood, and how God comes to her and picks her up and raises her and dresses her and adorns her and makes her into a beautiful queen and then enters into marriage with her. But then it talks about how Israel blew the marriage. But Ezekiel 36 and 37, God says, but I'm going to come into you, Israel, and I'm going to take out your heart of stone, and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. And then you get into Ezekiel 37, and I'm going to take all the death, I'm going to bring it to life. And then Ezekiel 40 through 48 is all about the temple. 40 talks about the hope of a new temple. And then Ezekiel 43, the, the glory, the Shekinah glory of God comes in and it fills the temple. So now we get to Ezekiel 47 and here's the picture. You have the temple and you have this little trickle of water, of living water. The Hebrew word is maim kaim. And it begins to flow. And as it flows, it turns into this great river. And it flows to the east, or to the, I'm sorry, out of the east, um, towards the west. And it, it flows through the desert and into the Dead Sea. And wherever it flows, it brings this desert wasteland to life. And this dead sea, where nothing lives, is now filled with fresh water and teeming with fish and life. It's a picture. Here's the question. What does this pro prophecy, what does this picture point to? What is it describing? Now there's two images in this prophecy. You have the image of the temple... And then you have the image of this living water, this Maim Chaim, that, that becomes a great river. I want to start with the temple this morning, because we don't live in a world anymore with temples. But temples placed were, were, were such a huge part of the daily life in the ancient world. I mean, they were front and center. This goes all the way back to Babel. That tower that they were building, it was a ziggurat, it was a temple. Front and center, this is what we're about. We need a temple. And temples in that day were the place where the supernatural intersected with the natural, where the immortal intersected with the mortal, the eternal with the finite. And so it was inconceivable in ancient times for there to be a God and there not to be a temple associated with that God. You couldn't have a religion and not have a temple to honor that God 
and worship that God. So every God had a temple. And then, of course, the temples became the most spectacular buildings in the world. I mean, they would just throw immense amount of manpower and resources and gold and silver and, and, and some of the best stones to build these awesome buildings. Some of them became wonders of the world in that day. They placed them in the heart of the city, oftentimes in the Acropolis, which is the place on a hill, the city on a hill, so that people from as far away as 15, 20 miles could look and see, wow, there's the temple to Athena. Wow, there's the Parthenon, the temple to, to, the, to its God. But more than being just impressive buildings, these temples offered life in the most practical ways. If you were hungry, you could go to the temple and get a free lunch. If you're thirsty, you can go to the temple and get free water. Some of us are thinking, so? What's the big deal about that? Of course it's not a big deal to us. We don't even think about if we're going to get enough food or water in a day, do we? Is that something you worry about? That was something a lot of people worried about in that day. They provided housing for travelers and the homeless. The temples provided free medical care. They even provided asylum for murderers and people who committed great crimes. Some of them were banks. You could put your money there and get it and earn interest. Many of them sponsored theaters and put on free plays. Now, why did they do all these things? Because they wanted to tell the world how great their God was. Depending on the God, they promised life at some of people's greatest points of need. Artemis, Diana, for instance, in a world, I know this is hard for us to imagine with our health care today, but in that world, one out of two women died of childbirth. One out of two. Artemis not only promised fertility, but protection in childbirth. And you don't think you wouldn't be tempted to worship Artemis, Diana? So the temple became that God's advertisement to the world. This is who I am and the life that I offer. Now, of course, we know our Bibles well enough to know that God takes this imagery of the temple, and I think he redeems it as he redeems everything in our world. And the temple is central to God's story. God uses the temple to teach us a lot about who he is and how we are to relate to him. And at the first Pentecost, which is when? Talked about this maybe two, three weeks ago. Come on, help me. No. It's after the first Passover, which is when? Okay, what book in the Bible at least? Exodus, thank you, okay. First Pentecost, what happens? 
people of God are gathered at the mountain, right, for marriage to the living God. Moses goes up, God comes down, and Moses then comes down with two things. What are they? Okay, two tablets, one for God and one for them. It's the marriage contract. Here it is. He also comes down with something else. Yes, he does come down with a glowing face. Something else. A blueprint. For what? The tabernacle, which becomes the temple. Because every marriage needs what? A love chamber. Place to consummate the marriage. And that's what the tabernacle was. And then you read these uh, chapters where God goes into such great detail about all this. You're thinking, why all this detail? Which I'll get to in just a second. But the temple tabernacle was God's idea. It wasn't Moses' idea. And you see this running throughout the biblical story. Even when the temple's destroyed, God comes back, has the temple rebuilt. But by the time you get to the end of the story, which we need to get there, I need to give you a teaser now because we're going to end in a few weeks in Revelation 21, 22. But there, in the city of God, there's no temple. Why not? God's there. In fact, I'll just give you a, a little bit more of a teaser right now because I don't know if I'm going to have time to get to it two weeks from now. But in, in those last six to eight chapters of Exodus, in painstaking detail, God is just laying out exactly how he wants his tabernacle to be built. And you're just like, why do I have to read all this and know all this? But the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, God instructs them to build it. Twenty by twenty by twenty making it a perfect cube. So then when they move from tabernacle to temple, same instruction. The holy of holies, the place where I'm going to dwell, my Shekinah uh, presence will be in that place. I want it to be a perfect cube. Probably because God's perfect. And his presence is perfect. And the temple is only double the size. But then you go to Revelation 21, and this is what it says about the city of God. The city is laid out as a square, and its length as great as the width. And he measured the city, and its length, and its width, and its height are equal. What is it? It's a cube. Meaning, the whole city of God is going to be a holy of holies. And so it's not that there isn't a temple, but the entire city of God will be a temple, a holy of holies. And what is coming out of that temple? Revelation 22, what does it say? A river. There's river flowing out from the throne of God, providing healing to the nations. Now I think it's a, that's probably a good time to segue to this, this second image in our text. The river, the water. 
When you read the Bible, and we've talked about this before, there are two kinds of water described. There's living water and there's dead water. Dead water was simply this. It's water that was collected and stored. So it's well water. It's cistern water. Living water, called Maim Chaim, is that water that comes to us via a spring, a flowing river, or rain. It comes to us from where? From God. And so, in a world, I mean, we can't imagine this ourselves. We take water for granted. But in a world where water was scarce and people lived to survive, water alone was a high commodity. But living water, it was priceless. Now, David is the first to use living water as a picture of who God is. As a deer pants for streams of living water. So my soul pants for you. In a desert, he writes Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My, my body longs for you. My soul, my soul, it, it thirsts for you. Living water in this dry and weary land where there is no water. In Jeremiah 2, in verses 13, and then 17, verse 13, one of God's complaints to, to the people is this. You have forsaken me, the spring of living water. I'm Chaim. And so living water is God. It's the very presence of God. And this is God's picture to us. This is what I am to a thirsty world that is dying of thirst. I'm living water. I'm a flowing river. What you also see is this. Living water is also associated with the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God being God's rule breaking in, bringing shalom to chaos. In Isaiah 35, I love this text. It says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. That's the kingdom of God passage, right? All right, that's, that, that's, that's, that's shalom coming out of chaos. Water, Mayim Chaim, will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Living water is also associated not only with God, the kingdom of God, but it's also associated with God pouring out his spirit. This is what it says in Isaiah 44. Come on, we're going to take in some text this morning, okay? It says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams the Holy Spirit. Joel 2, when it says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all men, right before God says, I'm going to come like the rain, like the autumn rains. I'm going to pour out my spirit. And I think the text that puts all of this together for me is, uh, is Psalm 46, where it talks about God being our refuge and our strength, ever-present help in trouble. 
talks about the world we live in. This is David's world, but this is our world. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with all their surging. But there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, a holy place where the most high dwells. God is in that river, in that city. And I'll tell you, I have the privilege of having an office where every day I can look out my window and see this river. And I pray to God, God, be in this city. Flow in this city. Just like that river out my, outside my window. So, this is the picture. And this picture of a river flowing out of the house of God is all over the Bible. Starting right in Genesis. In Eden, in Genesis 2 verse 10, it says, and there's a, there's a, um, a river watering the garden, and it flows from Eden where God dwells with man, and then this river splits into four, and it goes out to water the whole earth. So it's, the picture's right there in Eden. We have this picture of God at Mount Sinai. The people are in the desert. They're dying of thirst. God says to Moses, Moses, all right, hit the mountain. Hit Mount Sinai. Hit my house. Hit me, Moses. And so Moses hits the rock. And liver water, living water flows out of God's dwelling place. Then Jesus shows up. And Jesus not only says, I'm the temple, but in John 4 to this thirsty Samaritan woman, he says, I am living water. I am Mayim Kaim. And in John 7, on the last day of the feast, in the temple, he interrupts the whole thing. And he just shouts out, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. And living water will flow from within. And of course, Jesus is. He, he, he's the rock smitten by God. And, and when God strikes him, water flows from that temple for the healing of the nations. Then you get to the end of the story, which we just read in Revelation 22, and flowing out of the house of God through the city of God is a river. And along this river, tree of life, and trees with vegetation providing fruit for the healing of the nations. So now let's get in our text, Ezekiel 47. Here's Ezekiel's vision. Remember, the temple is destroyed. But he now receives a vision of the temple, and he sees a trickle of water flowing out from under the altar. And the water then flows out of the temple, down the southern stairs, and a thousand cubits from the temple, the flow becomes ankle deep. A thousand more, it's knee deep. A thousand more, it's waist deep. And finally, it becomes a mighty gushing river so wide it cannot be crossed. And you can just see it. And what's so amazing is where it goes. It goes through this dry, barren desert and into this 
poison salt wasteland, and wherever it flows, it brings life, explosive life. It's a picture. Here's the question What's being described? What's this about? Us. This is a picture of us. It's a picture of the city of God. It began at Pentecost when the Spirit flowed and it fell on those 120 disciples who were worshiping God that morning at the house. And that trickle of God's Spirit, it became deep as those first believers shared the gospel. And it like formed this puddle. In fact, I think what's interesting is this. Commentators place Peter on the southern stairs that day when he's preaching a sermon. And why do they place him there? For two reasons. It's the only place where rabbis could stand up and teach. Also, still visible today, are 50 mikvahs. These places where every Jew would go in and wash, had heart, hands, and feet before they entered the presence of God. And it's the only explanation for why 3,000 people could be baptized in living water in Jerusalem on that day. And from what part of the temple does the water flow? The south side. And then you read Acts. Please read it this week if you haven't read it. You're going to see this stream becoming ankle deep as they take the gospel to the surrounding cities. And then instead of losing energy, this river only becomes greater and fuller as it flows. And it flows into Asia. And it flows into Egypt. And it flows into Greece. And it flows into Rome. It made its way to the most desolate wastelands. Poisonous places. And wherever it went, it brought life. And you know what? We're here today because that flow reached us. And because that flow reached us, we are the temple. Not me, not you, we. As a community. We are the Holy of Holies. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking about this this week. I was just kind of imagining what it would have been like for those early Christians as they presented Christ. <laughs> so where's your temple? <laughs> and what'd they say? And, and, and even to show you that they asked the question, I mean, listen to Paul as he stands under the shadow of one of the greatest temples of that day, the Parthenon, in Acts chapter 7. Paul says, the God who made the universe, he does not live in temples made by hands. But what do you guys have that we don't have, or that our God doesn't have, or our religion, or our temple doesn't have? What do you have? Do you know their answer? We have community. 
And you know who lives in our community? God. Give me a break. God doesn't live in community. God doesn't live in people. Oh, yeah, he does. Come to our temple, our little house church down the hill. And so imagine this guy showing up. What is the proof to him that God is real and that God is there? What's the proof? I'm going to keep pushing this. I pray, God, I beg you, God, that they may love each other. That they may love each other as I have loved them and as you have loved me so that the world may know. That they may be one, Father, one, as you and I are one. That they may be brought to complete unity so that the world would know there is a God, and he's here. And this is the proof. It's not a sermon. It's not the four spiritual laws. It's not a hyped-up worship experience. Not to say that we don't do those things, and they're not of some value, but the proof to the world community of brothers and sisters who learn to love each other the way Jesus loves us and who learn to give as Jesus gave and learn to forgive as Jesus forgave. And again, we can't do this because we're so good. Oh, look how good we are. We can't do this because we just kind of will it. We do it because we know him and because he's here and we see our God and what he gave and what he forgave. And it just flows out as it flows in. And so I maintain this. The community is everything. And God always, he's always going to rush towards a community of people that he see are loving each other and are in unity and oneness with one another. And I also maintain that God is also going to pull away. He's going to Pull out his spirit when we live in disunity and can't love each other. I think there's a lot to think about here. I was also thinking about this. Okay, if unity and loving one another is our proof to the world, then what if we don't love each other? And what if there isn't what does that prove? I think it proves that we're a fraud. And why do you think so many people today don't want anything to do with Christianity? But this is God's strategy to reach the world. It's a community of people where God lives. And it's this, it's this that flowed, it just, it flowed like water, it flowed like a river into the world. So 
So if we're the temple of God, I think here's the question. Where's the river? And where is it flowing? And if it is flowing, what is it that's flowing? Is it Maim Chaim, living water, or is it dead water? The way in which God will send his living water to a thirsty world is through us. We're it. In Isaiah 32, verse 2, and I've read this a lot, but it says when Messiah comes, each will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, like streams of living water in the desert and the shade of a great rock in a thirsty land. We are here on this earth to be that river. And because of God's grace, and I hope I'm not speaking for myself, I hope I'm just stating the obvious and speaking for every, everyone right now, he has poured, he has poured his living water, his maim haim into us so that we can then pour it out into a desolate, poisonous world. We are to be a community that flows into that community. We are to be God's city that flows into that city. And so the question is, are we flowing? Does your life right now naturally just flow out? Does it flow out into your world? Does it flow out into your neighbors? Does it flow out into even the people that you do life with? Are you flowing out? A long time ago, I played football. <laughs> and uh, we had these things called two-a-days. Of course, we hated it. We hated it. Um, two-a-days simply meant you practice twice a day to get ready for the season. And it was also the time when the coach would just make you run and run and run. We're not done yet. Let's run some more. I mean, literally, guys would be puking. But one of the things I remember fondly is that moment when the practice was done at the drinking fountain and just drinking that water and just being there for a long time and thinking to myself, I can't believe how good water tastes. Look at our world. It's a desert. It's a dry, barren place. Would anybody say about you right now? You're living water to me. Be honest. If you're a parent, your children think that about you. Wow, mom, dad, you're just living water to me. If you're married, does your spouse think that about you? Oh, you're living water. Or what about the people that you work with 
or the people that you do life with, or the people you go to school with, or the people that you're in the marketplace with, or the people who live around you in your neighborhood, do, do thirsty, broken people come panting to you? And as you look at the world around you, are you seeing things come to life? Are you seeing where there was once desert, wow, there's a bush, and now there's fruit on that bush, and there's trees, and there's all this life just growing up around you. That's the picture. And that's what we are to our world. Our world doesn't need us just boxed in here. Our world needs us to flow and to get out there. Here's the thing about water. Think about it. There's a crack or a crevice or a chink in the armor. It will always flow to those broken places. Can I give you just one of the many ways in which the early church flowed to broken places? A very common practice in that day. Because of all the sexual practices going on, very little birth control. There were a lot of unwanted babies. Didn't want your baby? A lot of times it happened because families wanted boys and not girls, so many of these babies, these unwanted babies, were, were little baby girls <laughs> taken to the dump, the local dump, just drop them off there. You know what our brothers and sisters did? They went to the dump. And they listened to the cry. When they heard the cry, they did what God did to us. They adopted that child into their family. And they were, they were just known for that. Well, yeah, the Christians are the ones that hang out at the dumps. Take in all the unwanted babies. We listen to God. Do we listen to the world? Do we hear its cry? How many people do we walk past every day who are crying? Help us, God. Maybe the most honest thing I could challenge you with today is to ask this question. Is the, is the water you are offering to the world, is it dead water or is it living water? Because you can't offer something you don't already have. And so maybe the best thing some of you need to pray today is simply this. God, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. In Hosea 6, it says this. Come. Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. But he will heal us. He has injured us. 
but he will bind our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence as temples. Let us know the Lord. Let us press on to know him as surely as the sun rises, he will appear and he'll come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains, Maim Kaim, to water the earth. And Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and streams of living water will flow from within him. Let's pray. I don't want to steal this moment. If God's put anything on your heart to pray right now, just pray it out loud and proud.